Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Hi, my name is Tracy Bale. I am a professor of pharmacology and psychiatry at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland in the USA. And I am also the director of a new center called the Center for Epigenetic Research in Child Health and Brain Development. In February of this year, Dr. Tracy Bale was a special guest of the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, University of Melbourne, where she gave a public lecture titled Stressed Parents, Shaping the Brain Before, During and After Birth. The lecture focused on the role that stress and trauma play in disease across generations and how our life experiences can be transmitted biologically to the next generation, affecting not only how a child's brain develops, but also how they interact with their environment as they grow into adulthood. Dr Tracy Bale sat down to chat about her work with Dr Andy Horvath. Professor Tracy, what are you really known for? Like, what do your friends refer to you as? Well, that might be out of the context of this podcast right now, but scientifically, a lot of my colleagues think of me as being uh, someone who has studied uh, intergenerational and transgenerational effects of stress and how it's passed from parent to offspring, uh, including both mom and dad. I know you sometimes start your talks with a joke. So let's go with the joke. I know it starts with three scientists walk into a bar and they see a mother mouse and a son mouse lapping up gin from a thimble. So the mother mouse, who is clearly an alcoholic and now has a child who's also an alcoholic, turns to these uh, scientists, including a politician, I'm going to add, in this joke. And she says to them, hey, geniuses, can you tell me why my child is in this very sad state? And of course, Gregor Mendel says it must be something to do with... uh, Gregor Mendel, the great geneticist, says? So Gregor Mendel says, of course, it must be something to do with your genetics. And then Freud says, no, 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 I think it has something to do with your helicopter parenting style. Uh, And then, of course, Donald Trump enters in and says, no, it's because your ancestors were a bunch of idiots. And at this point, then five uh, hiply dressed somewhat aging men from the 80s walk in and say, in fact, uh, no, it is because you didn't feed uh, enough Vegemite to your child while your child was developing. Got it. And it does have vitamin B. So what you're saying is (laughs) it's a complex thing between genes, um, environment and behaviours, as well as lifestyle and the interaction between your ancestral makeup. That is, that, that is exactly right. And it's it's funny that over decades, we keep coming back to this concept and each decade it's sort of reframed in a different way. But really what it is, is what we like to refer to as G by E by D. And that means your genes, that which you inherit from your mom and your dad, your environment, that which you are exposed to both positively and negatively. This is not all just negative, and it's not dogmatic in that your genes determine or deterministic, right? It's the influence of the environment within an area of which those genes determine your path. And then the D is the developmental windows. And what that means is when these different environmental exposures, again, mom was obese, dad was stressed, 
you have a, spe- a specific type of enrichment. Your parents read to you more or less. Those sorts of environmental influences. Your diet, uh, uh, illnesses that you were exposed to. The time periods in which those exposures happen, did they happen prenatally? postnatally? Did they happen during puberty? Our brain continues to respond to its environments. So all of them together determine exactly how we function and our risk and our resilience. Now, I believe that our total makeup, being the combination of all those things you described, can also transcend a generation. So it's not just our children, but our children's children. Yes. So this comes from studies that are decades old, coming from an overcalyx region of Sweden. So this is a very northern area of Sweden. And there was a time period really early on where, because of its isolation, the individuals, the inhabitants of this area of overcalyx, uh, were exposed to periods of abundance in terms of harvest and large periods of famine. And the church records, which were classically kept in the basement of these churches, Uh, kept incredible details of the inhabitants, birth weights, illnesses, other diseases, in addition to the crop records. And so there were a number of investigators, Bayern and, and others, who took these data and they examined them really closely. And they did studies in which they would say, okay, in a period of time in which there were famine versus a period of time in which there was abundance and the children who were exposed, perhaps when my mom was pregnant or when children were going through developmental periods. And then how did that predict? And the first studies really examined how it predicted their longevity. Okay, so uh, a child, let's say, was going through that prepubertal growth spurt of which the germ cells, the cells that will give rise to the next generation, are, are maturing. And they said, okay, so if we were exposed to an overabundant crop, meaning we had lots of calories during that window, or if the same child was exposed to a famine during that window, did that abundance or famine lead to signals that affected the germ cells and thereby then affected the next generation? That would be intergenerational. What was truly remarkable about these studies, which seems pretty straightforward, was not just because they studied uh, uh, women or females, which seems very obvious about exposure, but these were really the first studies that indicated male germ cell vulnerability. And that was really impactful because it gave us our first evidence to say that if a male was exposed, especially during unique windows of when their germ cells were forming, right? because remember that male germ cell continues to turn over continuously, that there might be a window in which exposure to something like a famine could be stored, that signal itself stored, and continue to impact those boys well into manhood when they were having children. And the first studies demonstrated actually that a famine signal was propagated in a way that the next generation lived longer. It enhanced longevity. So it was probably signals, which we don't really fully understand yet, and that's a lot of the studies that that my lab does, 
what are these signals? What are the biological signals? Where are they stored? And how do they give rise then to why the next generation may live longer, right? So it's probably something metabolic in nature, right? But how does that happen for the next generation? So those are really the first studies that indicated, wait a minute, it's not just females and their eggs, but men and their germ cells as well. The sperm are somehow storing signals that impact how the next generation develops. Tell us more about the uterine environment. We know just from public education that alcohol affects the growing fetus, and we know the uterine environment is actually very important for a growing fetus. So it's it's it seems surprising that only within the last few decades have we really gained this information and this vantage point. So for instance, the placenta. So let's talk about the placenta. The placenta is this incredibly endocrine tissue. And what that means is, is that the, the, the placenta is not just a, a freeway of information traveling back and forth between the maternal compartment and the fetal compartment. It is actually a tissue that grows and develops and differentiates into all these different um, important, actually key cell types that transfer information as well as produce its own information that is required by the developing fetus, meaning that the developing fetus, especially the developing fetal brain, relies on this information over the course of development. And if you alter how the, the, the placenta develops, you may change its function, thereby what we define as trans-placental signals that tell the brain, wow, this is an environment that's going to have lots of calories available, or this is an environment that's not going to have enough calories available, and therefore allowing the fetus, the brain, to be born into what it would define as a best-fit environment. And then we have what is called the mismatch, which is kind of the dohad, the developmental origins of health and disease idea, which was um, really coined by um, a scientist named Barker called the Barker hypothesis. And Barker has subsequently passed away. But Barker, I had this idea that it was so important that the intrauterine environment, the information that the fetus and the brain think are going to be a best guess for how it's going to develop once it's born, match. And when the mismatch happens, so we think it's going to be an abundant environment because mom has gestational diabetes and sugar levels are high, and then it turns out you're born into an environment that's not so, that it's the mismatch that may put us at risk. So you're in an area referred to as epigenetics, which is sort of like the the non-genetic influences on gene expression. Tell us about your research. Epigenetics is, in fact, where you put a, think of it as a biochemical mark on the DNA. So it doesn't change the DNA sequence. We still inherit that from mom and dad. It is the environment's way of allowing specific genes to be expressed or not expressed, expressed more or during given times or in specific tissues. And that's really what epigenetics is about. Now, Epigenetics can be cell type specific, it can be tissue specific, and it can be developmental time period specific. Some of those marks will last, others will not. So some of them can have a temporary influence that may resolve. Others, especially if those epigenetic marks end up in a germ cell, 
of a developing baby. So that gives rise again to that next generation. You can imagine a way in which now you could have an inter and even potentially a transgenerational effect on how the offspring may develop, again, based on what this idea would be for a best fit environment. So how did you set about examining the markers that are transmitting the information across the generations? That's a great question and something that this field has been struggling with for quite some time. How do we really understand It seems obvious mom is exposed to an illness, which may be viral or a dietary challenge. She may be diabetic. Or in the case of my lab, we study stress, which is really ultimately all of those things. How does it pass its effect not just to the developing fetus, but what if she experienced those perturbations before she was even pregnant? Or dad, and this is really where those studies from the overcalyx region of Sweden come in, What if dad had been exposed to those stressors or perturbations? How on earth would those, because sperm is turning over, so the signal would have to be stored somewhere along dad's reproductive tract, but not directly in the sperm. And so that's really where the field has been uh, making the greatest advances, is trying to understand dad's somatic storage of information along the reproductive tract that could pass on those signals to the sperm in such a way that the sperm transiting dad's reproductive tract eventually meet up and carry that signal to the egg in a way in which it is a signal, sort of like telephone game, right? In which it is either the same signal propagated or a signal to a signal to a signal, sort of the A to B to C to D, that eventually alter what happens at fertilization. So the combination of egg, sperm and womb, does it affect a female fetus or a male fetus in a different way? So understanding sex differences during development has become an enormous focus in the field of understanding brain development. Some of the reasons for that are just in a, a vast appreciation uh, for research understanding at the cellular level, what does sex mean? So if a cell is XX or XY, meaning XX for female cell, XY for a male cell, that the signals all the way down at the level of the chromatin, the DNA itself, may be different. So it may be different in how it's responding to uh, the environment. And the best evidence we have is thinking about the placenta, So in animal research, which we use to try and understand mammalian development, we look at both male and female within the same uterus. So we can take a mouse, for example, and we can expose that mom while she's pregnant to multiple different types of stresses throughout her pregnancy. And then we can ask the question for, because mice have litters, right? So there's a developing male and a female within the same uterus. And we can look at the effect of, of mom's stress on how that placenta, how the cells differentiate, the different transplacental cues that they're giving to the fetus, and how those might be different. And all what we found is all the way down to the level of a, an XX placental cell and an XY. Because remember, I'm going to back up here, that the placenta develops out of the embryo. Remember, so at fertilization, if you go back to your developmental biology, once fertilization happens, egg cell, you get a two-cell embryo, four-cell, blastocyst, etc., before we develop the fetus, remember. And the outside of that blastocyst is called the trophectoderm. 
And that gives rise to the trophoblast cells that comprise the placenta that eventually invades mom's uterus. And so because of that, the placenta is largely XX if it's a female fetus and XY if it's a male fetus. And so we can ask sex-specific questions in the same intrauterine environment. Mom has been stressed. How does that placenta respond? And if you actually take a, a look at the evidence from, from, if you ask any neonatologist, pediatrician, obstetrician, if you say, well, we know from a history of studying effects of mom having a dietary challenge, diabetes, stress, immune infection, etc., the evidence is largely in the favor of the fact that a baby who is male is at much greater risk, somewhere depending on the disease we're talking about, four to ten times more likely intrauterine, to the same perturbation than a female baby. And the evidence also demonstrates that if you look at a NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, where if something has gone wrong during pregnancy, babies end up, there's way more male babies in the NICU than female babies. And if a male baby and a female baby end up in the NICU, it is in fact that the female babies will go home sooner. And if you look, if you just compound all of that evidence and think about neurodevelopmental disorders, autism, schizophrenia, ADHD, any of those things that we label as neurodevelopmental because they we know that the perturbation because of the changes in the brain happens intrauterine, right? Those are all slanted toward a male bias compared to females, right? There's more, four times more, more now than uh, four, four times more males affected than females. This is also true for schizophrenia. This is true for ADHD. So we know that if something happens intrauterine, a male baby is at much greater risk than a female baby. The poor chaps. So what's the cause of that? Well, let me tell you, though, if a perturbation happens after birth, Females are at much greater risk in terms of the brain. So we pay for it somewhere. Okay, so it evens out in the end. What do evolutionary biologists make of this sex difference? Well, it may be that for, if you think about evolution, right? So I'm going to give you an example. Think about the current obesity epidemic. At least we have a huge obesity epidemic in the U.S. Okay, so why is that? If something puts you at risk for all kinds of diseases, everything from cancer to diabetes, etc., why evolutionarily do we continue to overeat? Well, the reason for that is because our brains, which are on an evolutionary scale, have been programmed to desire calories because the biggest perturbation our brains as human beings is concerned about is actually famine. Our brains are wired, and this is why no drug company has been able to manufacture a drug to get us to stop eating, because it is so much redundancy built into our brains on an evolutionary scale to continue to eat calories. And the best evidence I can provide for you in the U.S. we call the Thanksgiving dinner effect. Thanksgiving in the U.S. is a gluttonous holiday full of all kinds of calorically dense food. Everybody knows that experience. You overeat dinner to the fact where you are just so full you couldn't possibly eat any more turkey. And then somebody brings out the pie. And despite how full you are, you are going to eat pie. Because again, the part of your brain that seeks reward in terms of, oh, that looks so good, will override the fact that you don't need those calories. You didn't need any of those calories probably 
but you want to eat them. That is the evolutionary scale. The same is true for stress in our environment. And the evolutionary scale has not caught up yet with the fact that we can eat too much, that calories are too available, nor has it really caught up with the consequences of autism or schizophrenia or stress, right? So eventually that evolution will catch up with it. But right now, the acute effects, autism, schizophrenia, these are not diseases that kill off a species. And in fact, in a given environment may actually provide some benefit. And that is evolution. And we have not really caught up or figured that out yet, right? So evolution. So why is the benefit? We think, and I'll give you an example again of the placenta, One of the reasons that females are so protected in the intrauterine environment has to do with, again, if you think of a cell and you focus all the way in to the level of how our DNA in the nucleus works, and because females have a lot of genes on the X chromosome, females have two Xs, males have one, that there is a way in which the genes in the females that are not what we call X inactivated, right? There are some genes that escape. And it allows females to express things that buffer them. You can think of this as as a car, a gas and a brake. Many of these genes, and in terms of responding to the environment, females have more of the brake. And so they sort of survey an environment. Well, we're not going to respond to this. We're just going to let this one go by. And they put the brake on. And the placenta right next door in in a mouse environment is a male, and it's got less of that break. So it's got more of that gas. And it says, oh my gosh, what is this? We should respond. Oh my goodness, what is this? We should respond. And that continuous responding to mom's changing environment, be it flu or cold or a diabetic environment, or what is this stress? What is this stress? What is this stress? They react, react, react. The females are breaking, breaking, breaking. And those signals change the placenta in the male to, by the end of gestation now, the developing male brain has seen all of these continuous responses the female brain has not. And what that may do then is now you're born into a world where how you're going to respond to the environment as a male is very different than the female. And in the right genetic background, let's go back to our G by E by D On the right genetic background, it may put that male at greater risk for later development of schizophrenia or by age two development of autism. Or think about this. If that placenta is sending cues to that male brain, changing environment, changing environment, what do you think evolutionarily that it may place upon that male? Let's say now you're in elementary school going into middle school, your brain may have now been wired to be vigilant, constantly responsive. And what do we call that? We call that ADHD. And so why we're seeing more and more of this in males, we see less of this in females, may just have to do with that a vigilance on an evolutionary scale may have been advantageous if you're out somewhere and there's more lions or et cetera, that you need to be vigilant. And so the right environment has you watching what's going on outside the window instead of listening to a teacher in a classroom, because you may have survived while the other students who are paying attention to the teacher and not watching the environment would not have. This is extraordinary research on stress and the fetus, but 
beyond. This has shed insights into other disorders. Tell us more. So so related to the ADHD, exactly. Why is it, do we think? You know, there's different evidence that suggests perhaps males in a given classroom environment, the teachers are just impatient, right? So it could be also a diagnosis issue. I don't want to ignore that, that we have differences. That's for sure. Um but why it may be, again, on an evolutionary perspective, that it may be, again, advantageous to behave in a certain way. So perhaps with the right cues during development, it may be that you don't want to be socially interactive. If that cue during development was that there was lots of infection around, I'm giving an example, perhaps you don't want to be social once you're born. You want to be a little more private or withdrawn to prevent yourself from picking up that the flu in the environment could be infectious, right? So you can think about ways in which evolutionary scale may suggest advantageous behaviors as opposed to just detrimental. So from an evolutionary biology point of view, we need all types in the tribe because it aids survival. survival. That's exactly right, survival. I love this yeah. because one might be thinking, oh, you know, pregnant women, watch out, take care, take a seat. But in actual fact, They've just got to be pregnant normally. Right. So it, I guess it takes a village, and that village may represent a wide swath of how we all interact with our environment. And on an evolutionary scale, that could provide some benefit in terms of risk for a given virus comes through or a given famine comes through, etc. How do we utilize our calories? Those are important signals as well, right? We have a breadth. Some people store calories really well in a given environment that may look like a disadvantage but actually evolutionarily storage of calories is advantageous. Those scrawny people out there who didn't store their calories, the first famine that comes around, they're gone. They're not reproducing. Right. So every the 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 breadth of how we respond and adapt to our environment, again, that developmental window piece of it may provide some benefit as well. But I think the thing that we can overthink is that we can't protect uh, here the key word is protect the developing fetus from everything because there may be some uh, advantageous longevity to aspects of having some resilience built in to effects of our environment. And I'm going to add to that uh, another uh, euphemism that we have in the U.S. right now called, we, we started with helicopter parenting, and we now call it uh, snowplow parenting, where it's actually seen as a disadvantage, right? Kids whose parents move every obstacle out of their way turns out is not a good thing because what we have are children going off to college and beyond who haven't learned how to deal with conflict or stress, having had them all removed from them. And this is not advantageous because now they're out in the world and they're not sure how to cope. And this is not just about mental health, although this is critically important for mental health, but even physiologically, how do I deal or adapt to something, a perturbation in my environment when I should have learned that skill, let's say when I was eight or 10, and now I'm 22 and I'm not sure, nor is my body or brain able to handle it. Professor Tracy, what has surprised you about this journey of research? You know what is I've found most surprising is that when you start off with a hey, let's try this just to see what happens. Or you know what the best thing is when a graduate student comes in your office and says, you know what I was thinking? I'd like to try, and you think to yourself, Well, you know, it's early in your PhD. It's probably not gonna work, but well, let's see what happens. 
And this is the question related to that intergenerational. If we take a male and just it's a mouse and we expose them to these chronic stresses every day for a period of time, and then we give them weeks off of stress, right? So they haven't been stressed for weeks. It's, it's equivalent of your job is super stressful. You're, you know, something's bad's happening. A new boss has come in, but you go on a, you know, let's say a four-week vacation. You've forgotten all about it. And then you come home and you get pregnant, right? So you're the male and you come home and your wife gets pregnant. You would think, well, it's been four weeks. I haven't been stressed. Well, it's incredible that this information gets passed on to their offspring, changes how those offspring's brain develop. And here's the most surprising part. Three months later, right? So this is a good thing about mice. We can breed them again and again. We take the same dad, the same mom, breed them multiple litters. And we can ask the question, how long does this effect last? Three months, which in the life of a mouse, I'm going to tell you. So a year-old mouse is the equivalent of late middle age, right? So that three months later, that male is breeding still, passing on the same effect. And that, to me, is A, a little bit scary, but B, gives us a model that says, wow, something really is happening here. Now we can try to delve really deep into the biology and then see how that translates. So in my lab, all of our animal studies have a human component to them as well. So we study, believe it or not, all of these effects as well in humans, and we collect lots of sperm samples to ask those those same questions. Tracy, where did your passion for science stem from? My passion for science, you know what, it's one of those things where I, when I look back, I had some really, I grew up in um, southern Minnesota in a little small town, mostly a farm town. My father is actually a pharmacist, a druggist, so clearly science is in my, my DNA. Um, and I always just loved science. I loved my science classes and never dreamed, I had no idea uh, being a scientist was in my, my future, but to me in thinking, even as a high schooler and into college, what is more fascinating than our brain, right? Nothing. I challenge you, nothing. Nothing is more fascinating. Nothing's more puzzling, of course, than our brain, but nothing's more fascinating. And I just think that the opportunity to develop a career where I get to, I can listen to a podcast as a good example. And I have this experience all the time where I'm at home on a Sunday and I'm baking and I'm listening to a podcast in the background and I think, oh my gosh, that's a fascinating question. And I come into the lab on Monday and we have a lab meeting and I get everybody pumped up and we can ask that question and say, okay, how do we model that? How do we ask that question? Is it something we can scientifically study to help answer for human disease and translate that? And it's super opportunity. I feel very lucky. So Tracy, leave us with a shareable idea. I think the the aspect I, I've I've in my recent move to Baltimore in the U.S., which has its challenges as a city, it has a lot of uh, race disparities and a lot of um, issues with uh, discrimination. Uh, I've spent a lot of time engaging in that community. And one of the things that crosses between my stress research and thinking about that community is when you're standing in line and you see an individual behaving in a certain way and you're impatient with their their decision process, or you're impatient with that they don't understand how something should work, to, to, to take a moment and reflect upon how they got there and the disadvantage that may have put them in that position and not just their disadvantage or their different perspective, but that of probably their parents as well and how that has contributed to your opportunities, their opportunities, 
And again, thinking about this this breadth of how we all come together with our different perspectives. And this is not just about somebody being ignorant or somebody being disadvantaged, but it could also be what we really gain together by bringing those perspectives of, wow, your brain developed in a very different environment than my brain, and how it really have come to appreciate everybody's unique opportunity and unique perspective and what it brings. It has really shaped how we think about a lot of the science that we do in my lab of how that brain perspective may see the world in a very different way and how it's responding to its environment and what that really affords us as opportunities together. Professor Tracy Bale, thank you. No, thank you. This has been super fun. Thank you to Dr. Tracy Bale, Professor of Pharmacology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Director of the Centre for Epigenetic Research. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on February 12, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop and Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.